One of the most fascinating aspects of the Word of God is when a writer of Scripture comments on what another author of Scripture has said. I don't only mean quotations of Scripture within Scripture. I'm talking about an actual comment made by one author regarding another author. For example, in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, the Apostle Peter said this, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. You almost have to chuckle when you read those words, because even Peter, an apostle, admitted that some of Paul's letters have sections in them that are hard to understand. Well, I'm here to tell you that Peter's letters also have some sections in them that are hard to understand. The passage to which we come this morning is a case in point, so you'll really have to make sure you have on your thinking cap to stay with me this morning. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 3, over near the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, and please follow along as I read verses 18 through 22, although we won't get through all of them this morning. We'll get a good start on them, and Lord willing, finish the section next Lord's Day. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. As you know, if you have been with us throughout this series on 1 Peter, much of this letter is about suffering. Suffering has been the experience of God's people for centuries, so it is no wonder that there are many passages in the Word of God that address the subject of suffering. 1 Peter has a lot to say on the issue. In verses 13 through 17 of this chapter, Peter has been talking about suffering. He has exhorted his readers to make sure to maintain a good conscience and good behavior because any suffering we might experience should not be the result of wrongdoing on our part. Having given that exhortation in verses 13 through 17, which we looked at last Lord's Day, Peter points to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when Peter mentions the Lord Jesus... It prompts him into a fascinating detour that can be very difficult to understand. Let's jump into this text together and you'll see what I mean as we work our way through it. 
In verse 18, after Peter has just exhorted those who are suffering in verses 13 to 17, he gives the example of Jesus Christ. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by or in the Spirit. The first part of this verse is not difficult to understand because it states truth with which most of us are very familiar. It reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered once for sins. In other words, Jesus died on the cross for sins once and for all. When Jesus died, as you know, he said, it is finished, or that could be translated, paid in full. Therefore, to talk about re-sacrificing Jesus in any way is blasphemous. Yet that is what millions of people believe happens to Jesus in their religious settings. Jesus' death was once for all. The other reminder that Peter gives us here in this verse is that the death of Jesus was the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He is righteous, and we are not naturally righteous, which is why he had to die to deal with our sins. Our sin is a barrier between us and God. Therefore, the only way we could be brought into a right relationship with God was for the Lord Jesus to pay for our sins and remove that barrier. When we receive that payment by faith, our sins are forgiven, and we are reconciled to God. The verse that sums up this truth is 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So far, so good. But this is where the passage gets tricky. The last phrase of this verse, notice the last phrase of verse 19, says, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The King James Version, New King James Version, and NIV translations capitalize the word Spirit at the end of this verse. The New American Standard Bible, New American Standard Update, and the ESV translations do not capitalize the word spirit at the end of this verse. That illustrates the difficulty of understanding what Peter is saying here. Which translations are correct? I believe the New American Standard Bible, New American Standard Update, and the ESV translations are correct for not capitalizing the word spirit in this verse. Let me explain why. First of all, the Greek manuscripts do not solve the issue for us because all the words in the Greek manuscripts are completely capitalized. So that doesn't really help. Therefore, you need to look for other clues for the proper interpretation. In this case, the context argues for not capitalizing the word. The contrast in this verse is between Jesus' body and his inner spirit with a small s. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in his spirit with a small s. When Jesus was put to death in the flesh, 
His spirit was made alive, which could indicate that his spirit experienced spiritual death when he became sin and was made alive once the debt was paid. Either way, we know that the inner spirit of Jesus was alive at the end of the crucifixion because he himself said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So this is not referring to the Holy Spirit here in verse 19, but rather to the human spirit, or or verse 18, but rather to the human spirit of Jesus. That's the contrast of this verse. And then Peter tells us what Jesus did after his body was dead, but his spirit was still alive. Verse 19 tells us, By whom or by which also... He went and preached to the spirits in prison. As you may know, this passage is one that is used to support all sorts of beliefs and dogmas. Some take this passage to mean that Jesus preached to people who were were in hell to give them a second chance to believe and to be saved. Others take this passage as support for their view that Jesus went to hell for a while as part of his pain for our sins. Neither of those ideas is supported by this passage, and both are contradicted by other passages in the Word of God. Jesus did not go to hell to pay for our sins. He paid for our sins on the cross and said, It is finished, paid in full. Jesus did not go to hell to preach to people to give them a second chance to be saved, because as Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed to men to die once and then judgment. Once you die, that's it. No second chances. So what does this verse mean? Notice that verse 19 says, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. The term spirits, when used in the New Testament without further definition or modifying adjectives, refers to angels or demons. It refers to spirit beings. So the spirits being referred to in this verse are not spirits of people. They are demonic spirits. And this verse says Jesus preached to them. Interestingly, the word preached in this verse is not the Greek verb for preaching the gospel. This is not uangalizomai. This is not a, a, a verb for preaching the gospel. This word simply means to make an announcement or to make a proclamation of some kind. So Jesus made an announcement or a proclamation to the spirits in prison. What spirits are Peter talking about? The first part of verse 20 answers that for us. It says, the spirits who formerly were disobedient when the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Now maybe you're saying, now that clears up the whole thing. What is Peter saying here? What in the world is he talking about? He says in verse 19 that Jesus made an announcement or a proclamation to some spirits... And then he tells us in this verse what he is referring to uh, and that he is referring to the spirits who did something back in the days of Noah. That takes us to Genesis 6. So let's go back 
to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 6. Genesis 6, 1 says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. There is nothing in this verse that is unusual or difficult to comprehend. It is very straightforward. It is simply saying that as the population of the earth began to increase, many daughters were born. The difficulty comes in the next verse. Verse 2 says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. One of the keys to understanding this verse is the phrase, the sons of God. In Hebrew, that is bene Elohim. When that phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture, mark this, it is a reference to spirit beings. Let me show you what I mean. Turn from here over to the book of Job, chapter 1. Find the book of Psalms. It's a large book, fairly easy to find. And back up to the book just prior to it, the book of Job, chapter 1. Job, chapter 1, verse 6. We are told in Job 1, 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God, there's our phrase, coming right out of Genesis 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is also a fascinating passage of Scripture because it takes us from events happening on earth to events happening in heaven. The first five verses of this chapter tell about Job and his life here on earth, but the scene shifts from earth to heaven in verse 6. The angelic beings, the spirit beings, are gathering before the throne of God to give an account of their activity, and Satan was among them. Now, there are many implications we could draw from this scene, but what I want us to notice is that this verse uses the same phrase as Genesis 6-2. It uses the phrase, the sons of God, same in English. It's the same phrase in Hebrew, bene Elohim. And it is clear that this phrase is referring to spirit beings. We see the same thing over in chapter 2 of Job. Just skip over to the next chapter. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again there was a day when the sons of God, bene Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Again we see the phrase, the sons of God, used to refer to spirit beings. So when we encounter that phrase in Genesis 6-2, there is good reason to believe that it is also referring to spirit beings. Now go back to Genesis chapter 6, where we were just a moment ago. Chapter 6, and now we'll look at this passage again. Genesis 6, 1. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. 
This verse does something else to alert us to the fact that something unusual is being described here. Not only does it use the phrase, the sons of God, it also sets this group in contrast with the other group mentioned, namely, the daughters of men. So that's a way for the writer to let us know that we are dealing with two vastly different groups. One group was the sons of God. The other group was the daughters of men. To say it another way, one group was spirit beings. The other group was human beings. The human beings were females. The spirit beings were demons, as we will see from a couple passages in the New Testament in just a moment. So this verse tells us that these spirit beings took wives for themselves. Now immediately we are confronted with a problem. How can spirit beings get married to human beings? To answer that question, turn over a few chapters to Genesis 18. Just a few chapters to the right. This passage shows us that spirit beings, angels or demons can take on human form and function just like human beings. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to him, that was Abram, appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. Now, verse 2 refers to these visitors as men. But it becomes clear as you read the rest of the story that these three men were actually the Lord himself and two angels. Evidently, Abram recognized the, the uniqueness because he bowed down in worship of these. Verse 6 says, So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. You see, these were not three mere men. This was the Lord himself and two angels. Verse 16 says, Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? 
since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. For I, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done according altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know." Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then, as you probably know, Abraham had a conversation with the Lord at this point in which he asked about sparing the city if there were enough righteous people in it. Skip down to verse 33, right at the end. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. But what about the other two men, and I have the word men in quotation marks, what about the other two who were there earlier? Chapter 19 tells us about them. Verse 1 says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. The fascinating thing about this story is that the text regularly refers to these two angels as men because they had taken the form of men, they walked like men, talked like men, ate like men. They functioned just like men, yet they were angels. Verse 1 calls them angels, and verse 15 calls them angels. Furthermore, their supernatural powers of judgment, as displayed in striking the people with blindness and in their role of destroying Sodom, proved that they were angels. So this passage shows us that spirit beings are able to take on human form and function just like men. Therefore, it is not impossible to see how the spirit beings in Genesis 6 were able to take on human form and marry women. But there's another question that comes to mind. Why would these demonic spirits do this? We wouldn't know the answer to that from the passage in Genesis 6. 
But there is a text in the New Testament that gives us some insight. And we're going to look at that passage in just a moment. But let me give you the answer first so you know where we're going. And then I'll support it when we look at the passage. I believe the demons in Genesis 6 married women to produce an unusual offspring in an attempt to destroy the messianic line so that the Messiah could not be born in the human race. I believe it was a satanic attempt to prevent the Messiah from being born as a member of the human race to redeem sinners in the human race. After all, God had already said in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would someday crush the head of the serpent. God had already predicted, that, that the, predicted the coming of the Savior who would be born of a woman. So if Satan wanted to prevent that from happening, then one of the best ways to do that was to have his demons take on human form and marry women. Number one, that would prevent those women from giving birth to the Messiah. And number two, if they were able to produce an offspring, the offspring would not be truly and genuinely human. In other words, it could eventually distort the human race as a race, and that would prevent the Savior from joining the human race to redeem people from their sin. So I believe that is what is being described in Genesis 6. And if there were children born from these marriages... All of that offspring was destroyed in the flood that came 120 years later and wiped out everyone except for Noah's family of eight. Now, some people object to this interpretation because they say it contradicts the word of Jesus in Matthew 22:30, where he said, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But there is no contradiction. In that verse, Jesus is saying that angels don't get married to each other up in heaven. Angels are not a race, and they don't procreate as a race. But that verse doesn't say anything about demons taking on human form and functioning like men. To support this interpretation, let me point you to a couple of texts in the New Testament. First of all, turn over to the little book of Jude, just prior to the book of Revelation. You can find the book of Revelation and go backwards to the little book of Jude that precedes Revelation. Here in the book of Jude, we are given three examples of judgment as illustrations of the fact that God is going to judge sin and evil in the future. We'll pick it up in verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That is the first example of judgment that Jude mentions, the evil, unbelieving people who had experienced deliverance from the land of Egypt. Jude's second example of judgment is the one that interests us in this message. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Two different times in this verse, Jude emphasizes that this particular judgment came upon angels who did not stay in their own realm. They did not stay where they belonged. 
He says they did not keep their own domain and they left their own abode. This is not a description of the original sin in which one-third of the angels rebelled with Satan. This is something different. This is angels not keeping their proper domain and leaving their own abode. And we also know that this is not referring to all the angels that rebelled with Satan because this verse says that these angels have been judged by being reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Beloved, you can't say that about all the angels that rebelled with Satan. Satan, they are not being reserved in everlasting chains. They are free and roaming around the universe. So this group of fallen angels or demons is only a subgroup of the larger group that rebelled. What did these fallen angels do to end up being reserved in everlasting chains? They did not keep their own domain and they left their own abode. Specifically to what does that refer? The next verse gives us more details. Verse 7. Notice the comparison Jude gives. He says, as, he's making a comparison, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude tells us that the angels of verse 6 did as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did. They gave themselves over to sexual immorality and they went after strange flesh. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah did not keep their own domain and left their own abode by giving themselves over to homosexuality, these angels did not keep their own domain and they left their own abode by cohabiting with the women of Genesis 6. Peter says the same thing. Not in our text in 1 Peter, but in 2 Peter. Look at 2 Peter 2. Just back up a few pages. Prior to the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John letters, 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter is also assuring his readers that sin does not go unpunished. And he uses one of the same examples Jude uses. Chapter 2, verse 4, 2 Peter 2, 4. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to, and I'm going to use the literal Greek word here, I'll come back to it, cast them down to Tartarus, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Before we go on, we have to make sure that we understand what this verse is saying and what it is not saying. It is not saying that the angels who rebelled with Satan were judged by God and cast into hell. We know that is not true from many other passages in Scripture. Demons are not in hell today. Satan is not in hell today. Satan and demons are free to roam about and wreak havoc in the world and in people's lives. The New Testament warns us about them. To not give in to Satan, not give in to his demons. Demons are free to roam around then what is this verse saying? Just about all of our English translations use the word hell in this verse. But unfortunately, that is probably not the best translation of this word and this verse. This is not the Greek word Hades, a word with which most of you are familiar. It's not the Greek word Gehenna, which is translated, rightly so, hell throughout the New Testament. 
Both of those terms, Hades and Gehenna, are used in the New Testament to refer to a place of fiery judgment. Hades is the place of fiery judgment where people go today if they die without Christ. In other words, when someone dies today without Christ, he or she goes to Hades. That's the technical term. Gehenna is the ultimate permanent lake of fire where the lost of all the ages will be judged for eternity. But let me stress, neither of those terms is used in this verse. Not only that, it's important to notice that this verse says that the angels in view, the angels that Peter has in mind, are in chains of darkness and they are being reserved for judgment. In other words, they are being held for their future judgment. They're not experiencing that judgment now. They're not experiencing it yet, but they will experience it. They are being held for it. It's like a convicted criminal being held in prison while he awaits his execution. That's what's being described. These demons are being held in, and the Greek word Peter uses, they are being held in Tartarus while they are awaiting their future judgment judgment. Again, let me stress, this is not Gehenna or the lake of fire. This is the pit or the abyss spoken of in Revelation chapter 9. This is a group of angels that sinned and experienced some kind of judgment, holding judgment to await future judgment. To what group of angels is Peter referring? I believe he is referring to the same group Jude mentions, the group in Genesis 6. And that comes out in the next verse as Peter moves from these angels to the next group in his mind. Notice in verse 5, he says this, And did not spare, God, he's talking about God's judgment, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Isn't it interesting that Peter mentions a group of angels in verse 4, and then he mentions the people of Noah's day in the very next verse. Both of those groups are right in Genesis chapter 6. Not only that, but notice the next example that Peter gives in verse 6. He says, "...and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction." making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now I want you to notice what Peter has done here. He has mentioned a group of angels who sinned, verse 4. And then he has mentioned the example of the people of Noah's day, verse 5. And then he has brought up the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. All three of those are somewhat related in that the angels of Genesis 6 did not keep their own domain and they left their own abode, just as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah would do years later. And that was part of the reason why God sent a worldwide flood. All of that is strong reason to believe that the angels to which Peter is referring here in verse 4 is the group of angels in Genesis 6 who cohabited with women. So, if you add it all up, the phrase sons of God in Genesis 6, the description of angels who did not keep their own domain and they left their own abode, the mention of going after strange flesh like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the grouping of these angels with the events preceding the flood, the evidence points to the conclusion that Genesis 6 
is telling about angels or demons who cohabited with women in an attempt by Satan to destroy the messianic line. Did they succeed? You know the answer. They did not succeed. God brought about judgment in two ways. Number one, God sent the worldwide flood to destroy all the wicked human race except for Noah's family of eight. And as I said earlier, if these demons who, who took on human form to cohabit with women, if they produced any offspring, then their offspring was destroyed by the flood. Secondly, God judged the fallen angels who had participated in this diabolical scheme by sending them to the abyss or to Tartarus so that they would be confined there until their future judgment. This is apparently the same place that Jesus sent some of the demons that he encountered in his ministry. The demons who begged not to be sent to that place, but were sent there anyway. So let me pull all of this together and relate it to our text in 1 Peter. Go back now to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus in his spirit, his human spirit, verse 19, went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Specifically, Peter says, Jesus went in his human spirit between his death and resurrection, made a proclamation to the spirits who did the diabolical thing they did in the days of Noah. So let me pull all of this together. The Lord Jesus, between his death and resurrection, while dead in the flesh, but acting in his spirit, spiritual nature, went to the place of confined angels. There he announced judgment for them, which he had just accomplished and sealed at the cross. Let me say that again. The Lord Jesus, between his death and resurrection... We're talking about in that three-day span. Between his death and resurrection, while dead in the flesh, that is his body dead in the tomb, but acting in his spiritual nature, went to the place of confined angels, specifically those who participated in the Genesis 6 scheme. There he announced judgment for them. There he announced victory over them, which he had just accomplished and sealed at the cross. Basically, Jesus went and announced to them, you lost. You didn't win. You didn't succeed. You did that diabolical scheme all the way back in Genesis 6 in an attempt to keep me from coming to this earth to die for the human race, but it didn't work. I died for the human race. I paid for their sin. Isn't that exciting to think about, beloved? All of the work and effort of the most heinous demons in the universe could not stop the Lord Jesus Christ from accomplishing his purpose and the plan of God to come to this earth as a man and to die for the purpose of paying for our sins and for the purpose of sealing the judgment of Satan and demons. Think about that. There is far more to the incarnation of Jesus and the crucifixion story than meets the eye. There was a cosmic battle 
to prevent the Lord Jesus from coming to this earth. Let me say it another way. There was a cosmic battle to stop Christmas. A cosmic battle to prevent the Lord Jesus from coming to this earth and to prevent him from dying to bring us to God. But I'll say it again. All of the work and effort of the most heinous demons in the universe could not stop the Lord Jesus from accomplishing his purpose and the plan of God to come to this earth as a man and to die for the purpose of paying for our sins and for the purpose of sealing the judgment of Satan and demons. That's what Peter is referring to here in 1 Peter 3. Now, why does he say all of this? Why this fascinating detour? The reason why Peter tells us all of this is because he wants to remind us, and here's the point, he wants to remind us that although we may suffer in this life, ultimately, we will be victorious. The unequaled example of such triumph is the Lord himself. Jesus suffered, Peter says here in verse 18, the just for the unjust, and he was victorious. If we belong to him, we will be victorious. Do you belong to him? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? If not, I urge you to do so this very day. Let's bow together in closing. As you bow your head and close your eyes in the couple minutes we have remaining, think about, think about the amazing story that we have seen this morning in the pages of Scripture. The attempt by Satan and his demons to stop Christmas, to stop Jesus from coming to this earth born of a woman, to somehow pollute the human race, Destroy the human race as a race so that the Messiah could not be born of a woman, which God had predicted all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The Messiah would be from the seed of the woman and crush the serpent's head. But Jesus was victorious. Satan was not. The demons were not. Jesus was victorious. And we are told that to encourage us to remember that although we may suffer in this life, ultimately, beloved, we will be victorious. Jesus is our example. If we belong to him, we will be victorious. So I ask you again this morning, do you belong to him? Really? Do you really belong to him, the victor, the conqueror? If you don't, or if there's any doubt in your mind, Humble yourself before it's too late. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, to grant you his salvation. Tell him you want to receive him as your Lord and Savior, that you want to belong to him. Father, what an amazing story. And we are grateful that you saw fit, that you chose to tell us these things. There's no way we could have known all of this, all that had transpired behind the scenes were it not for you telling us in your word. And may we not forget the reason why, the reason to be an encouragement to us that if we belong to 
your son Jesus Christ, ultimately we will be victorious. So we pray for anyone here in our midst who does not know the Savior, who does not know your son personally as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit draw that person to surrender to to your son Jesus Christ before it's too late. We pray these things in his powerful, victorious, conquering name. Amen.